Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled Loving God, was given on February 12, 2017 by Bethany Shea in the series Up, In, Out on Love. All right, so Exodus 20. Who would like to read Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17? Anybody want to read that to us this morning? Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. It should be pretty familiar to some of you. It is uh, the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue is what it's called as well. So anybody want to read it? Thanks, Sam. Yeah. We have NIV. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pull that one up on your phone. <laughs> and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day is a Sabbath for the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor your foreigner residing within your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he was rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Amen. Thank you for reading that. So, okay, last week we went through a lot of uh, the vision of Catalyst and where, where each of you are resonating with the vision. We looked at up, in, and out, and we had the taglines up, loving God, in, loving one another, and out, loving our neighbors. And we kind of discussed what that looks like as a church, but then also what it looks like um, in your own context and what, what you could crave as a person within those areas and how we as a church can meet that. And we saw that we need a lot more time on each of those things. We, I mean, we didn't even get to loving neighbor. Like we, we were like writing down so much. And tonight the vision team is meeting from Catalyst. And so we'll go into it a little deeper and, and come up with more vision for our church that way. But um, but we want to keep the conversation going here on Sunday mornings. So today, we're going to look at what it means to love God. And in an ancient Hebrew setting, the Ten Commandments were a place to start. Um, but when we come to the scriptures, when we come together as Christians, Christians means follower or disciple of Jesus, um, we look to Jesus as our reference point, right? Like we start with Jesus and then we kind of go out from there to see what Jesus was doing. And if you look at, um, at, at the Apostle John, when he writes the book of John, that first chapter in that book of John, he writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he's claiming that that word is Jesus Christ. And so if we're saying that in the beginning was the word. How did, how did, God, how did God create this earth or, or bring it into motion? What, was, what did he use in the beginning? His breath. His breath. He spoke it. He spoke it. Let there be light, God says. So that word was there with God at the very beginning. And so if we believe that to be true, then when we come to the Old Testament, every page whispers the name of Jesus. Every page has Jesus in it. If, if he was there at the beginning when God first breathed this word, this world into existence. So we have to be able to see Jesus through that lens of the Old Testament. It's very important um, with Jesus as our reference point, as our rabbi or as our teacher and savior, that when we are looking at the purposes of God and our own purposes that God has given us, we begin in that state of, of the Old Testament. Jesus was asked by a teacher of the law one day. He was uh, 
hanging out with his disciples and this, and this guy who's kind of an expert in the law of Moses and the prophets, he comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, what is the greatest commandment that we're supposed to follow? And the question was so much more than just a simple question because this teacher of the law, this expert, wanted to know what Jesus' interpretation of the Torah or God's law. The Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So what Jesus' interpretation is of that. And every rabbi during that time and every rabbi before that time had their own interpretation of God's law. And that interpretation was called their yoke. So when Jesus says in Matthew 11 to the disciples to take uh, my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Basically what Jesus is saying there is that the way that I interpret the Torah the way that I interpret God's law is not meant to be a burden and not meant to draw you down or make you feel disheartened. It is to create life, life that is, that is simple and, and makes sense because it's the way that God created you to live in the first place. So oftentimes, though, we, um, we look at the teachings of Jesus or what we have come to with the scriptures from our own backgrounds and experiences, and it does feel a little complicated. It feels burdensome um, for a lot of us who grew up in the church especially. Like, have you guys ever experienced that like, uh, type of Christianity or, or type of religiosity that was kind of burdensome in the past? Anybody? Anybody have any like, stories to share? Yeah, Ariel? Okay. A certain standard that you're expected to uphold, and right. uphold that standard, there's like consequences to like you being able to see, uh, serve, and stuff like that. And right. Just yeah, there's been a lot of legalism. Yeah. Right, right, and that's how it was for me growing up too. I felt a lot of that as well. Other people. A lot of close-mindedness. Close-mindedness. a lot of us have experienced a little bit of that um, and honestly I, I think most of the times those, those teachers, pastors, the churches are coming from a good place it's not that they're trying to make it difficult but I think what we're gonna what I feel like God is teaching us today this morning is, is that it's meant to be seen, like God's law is meant to be seen as joy and not as burden um, and so I hope that we'll have some of that kind of perspective as we go on so this teacher of the law asks Jesus that simple question of what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers the Shema, which is out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Actually, we'll read that. You can turn if you want. Deuteronomy is, um, uh, it means a second telling, Deuteronomy. Uh, basically, it is a, it is a continuation of... Um, of, or like a retelling of, of Exodus, of the Exodus account, the law of Moses, the, the Levitical law, um, it kind of shortened and condensed for, for people. So it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then he goes on to say, like, bind these to your to your forehead, to your arms, like put them on your doorposts, make sure that you always remember this. And so the, the people of Israel during this time and before this time and, and even to today, um, devout Hebrew people will, will pray this prayer multiple times a day to remember who they are and whose they are. And so Jesus answers, well, this is the greatest commandment, which is a, it's just a, yeah, of course it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, soul and strengths. Strength, and then, but he says the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to get into that part later on, but basically what Jesus is saying is that when we love God, it's manifested and shown 
oftentimes by how we love other people, how we care for those around us, how we care for the marginalized and the oppressed. Um, and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God puts rule upon rule and law upon law for the people of God to take care of the refugee and the foreigner among them, to take care of the orphan and the widow and the, person, the people that don't have enough. That, that it's our responsibility, it was their responsibility, it's our responsibility still today to be that for the people, to, to care for those around us. So but I, where I want to spend our time this morning is kind of looking at, um, at what Jesus would have meant by loving God in that first century context. Because for us, we have like one word for love. We use that word for like, I love pizza and I love my spouse in the same breath. And it kind of loses its meaning. The Jewish people have multiple words for love. And so when we say love, there needs to be a definition behind that for us to understand what it means today. Jesus was a Jewish man. He followed the Torah. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He didn't come to abolish it, he said. He didn't come to do away with all the laws that God put in place. He came to make sure that those laws were known as this beautiful thing that God had put in place for the people. Um, but because we're meant to follow Jesus, and he describes in Scripture that he's following his Father, that the, he's, he's doing the will of his Father. He says that again and again, that he's doing the will of God or Yahweh or his Father then we need to know what it's like for Jesus who is following God. What does that mean for us today? And so we have to look at Jesus through the eyes of what it meant to be a Hebrew in that time. So turn back with me to Deuteronomy. We're going to be in Deuteronomy actually quite a lot today. In chapter 10. So chapter 10 is interesting because it kind of goes through the what, what God had put in place with the with the Ten Commandments, which is also called the Decalogue, um, and where to put those, those tablets that, that God had created, put in this Ark of Covenant, which has all sorts of significant meaning. Um, but then in, in, verse, or in chapter 11, it says here on verse 1, Love the Lord your God, and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. So what does this look like then? How do, we, how do we keep his laws today in the light of Jesus and viewing Jesus as our Savior and our Lord who came to complete the law, who, was, who died on the cross, who was resurrected from the dead? Everything is different now, right? So how does it look today for us to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves from the Hebrew perspective? There's a lot of different theologians who look at um, the pages of Exodus where God uh, uses Moses to take the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He takes them through the Red Sea. And they see that as kind of a marriage covenant between God and the people. We might talk about this more next week about what it means to this whole marriage thing. But it's an interesting concept because marriage is a part of our lives here in our, in our 21st century context. Jason and I are coming up this Friday. will be 16 years of marriage that we're celebrating. I know. It's, I'm stoked. Totally stoked. And, and something that we do often, from like the very beginning that we got married until all the time, we ask each other if we're meeting each other's needs. And the reason that we ask if we're meeting each other's needs is because our lives are going so fast and we are always changing as people that if he doesn't ask me if he's meeting my needs, I oftentimes don't even know what my needs are because I've changed and maybe he doesn't know that. And maybe he can't come in and, and meet that area that, that as a husband he's, he can do if I don't even know it for myself. So we ask each other. We check in. We, we ask how, we're, how we can be the best partner that we can possibly be for the other person. Now, I love him. I love Jason so much. He is my best friend. He knows I love him. But let's say that like right after we get married, um, shortly after we get married, Jason says, I love you, but how can I show you that I love you? So I'm going to go through something here. I feel like it might be appropriate for uh, understanding a little bit of what God had for people. So let's say he says, how can, how can I show you how much I love you? So I would tell him, well, Jason, you can love me by maybe, um, maybe the first thing that you can do to love me is just don't have any other girlfriends, okay? Like, <laughs> I'm it. So I'm going to say, 
let's let's not have any other partners, any other girlfriends. We're, it's just it's just gonna be me now, okay? Um, which is yeah. <laughs> I know. like, wait, what? I already married you though. Like, we should talk about that. No. So no other girlfriends. It's just me. This is what I tell him. This is how you can show me that you love me. Another thing that you can do to show me that you love me is is um, to put me first. To you know, I know you have lots of other friends. I am all over the place with writing here. Right. No, I can get. I can multitask sometimes. So uh, I know you have a lot of other friends. You have all these high school buddies that you grew up with and that were at our marriage at our wedding, and, and and you love spending time with them. I know that you love that, but but I need to come first. And maybe someday we'll have kids, and kids will always want to take our time away, but we but I still need to come first. And I know that you have a great relationship with your mom, but I still need to come first. So that's a that's like a, a thing that I put in place. It's like, okay, well, how else, else can I love you? And I say, well, um, maybe maybe don't degrade me. Don't put me down. Um, so if you're hanging out with your friends and you guys are all talking about how difficult marriage is and you're like, oh, the old ball and chain, like even though it's funny, don't do it because that kind of language can can just become something that mean, has more meaning as time goes on, especially if we're not in the same place. So just don't don't put me down. Don't say anything negative about me to people. Um, another thing that you can do, Jason, is you can remember our date nights. Um, maybe once a week, we make sure to have a date night that we are um, doing something outside of our norm. It's, it's just you and me. We're not inviting other people into it. This is just something that we get to connect with and make sure that our relationship stays, um, are reminded of, of how important the other person is. It's just going to be us. And then, you know, the fifth thing that you can do is, um, is to honor, honor where I came from. Like, honor my family of origin, my heritage, uh, the things that, that make me who I am. So in that, can you just honor my parents? And I want to honor your parents, uh, where you came from. So this is how you can show your love to me. And then maybe I go on and I say, um, but beyond loving me in this marriage, I, I would love to see you just be a loving person in general. So this is how you can be a loving person. Uh, maybe don't be mean. Like, don't don't say hurtful things to people. Don't don't get in fights if like. You gotta defend my honor, let's just leave, because that is so much better than like getting in a fist fight with some weird random dude. So don't be mean. Um, be mean. And another way that you can be a loving person is, is be faithful to our family. So you may want to put other things ahead of our family, but it's really important that if you're if you're a loving person that you're that you're putting our family first. That you make us a priority. Maybe the third thing about how you can be a loving person is don't cheat. Like don't um, don't try to get ahead or or make or like take stuff from other people or take a promotion from another person that you know about is in the work. So so just don't don't cheat anybody out of anything. And another way that you can be a loving person is is don't lie. Don't try to like manipulate a situation to make um, to make you look better, to to make um, to make you save face or anything like that. Like to be a loving person means that you tell the truth. So so let's not lie. Um, and the fifth thing is is don't be materialistic. Don't try to find your sense of self worth from the things that you could buy. Um, don't find your self worth in stuff. Like just be satisfied with this life that God has given you, with the things that God has given you, so we can use it for God's glory in the world instead of trying to keep it for ourselves. And then maybe over this, I would just say, you know, another thing that you can do is within these 10 things of loving me and, and, and being a loving person, maybe, maybe you also um, disciple our kids in these ways. And maybe you disciple other people too. Like you show them how you love me and how you love other people by being an example of that. So sometimes in our family, 
um, we, or in, just in conversations in general, you'll find this in youth group settings or stuff like how far is too far? When can I have sex? Is it before marriage or is it after marriage? What is it? Um, or there's, you know, how much can I drink? Like what's the tipping point for how much I can drink? Maybe it's just watch me. Like kids, watch me how I love your, I love your mom. Watch me how when I have a glass of wine at night, I don't have two or three. I have that one with dinner. Watch how I am a good friend to the people that is in my life. Watch how I do these things. This is how you live. And so maybe the discipling isn't so much of like in the Bible every day, like we're doing three hours every morning as a family. Maybe it's just like watch me how I love Jesus in every area of my life. So that's what I would say. I would say... All of those things, like disciple our kids, what it means to be a faithful partner, what it means to be a loving husband. Um, now, you, I, I mean, you can probably see where I'm going with this. Like, this is, this is kind of like the Ten Commandments and what it means to love God and put God first and, and to have no other gods before him. And um, My love for Jason and his love for me is something that we've committed to. We covenanted in marriage. It is unconditional. Um, at least I certainly hope it is, always and forever unconditional. But intimacy is far more conditional, right? If he isn't loving me and isn't a loving person, then I will actually doubt his love for me. It won't make me stop being committed to him. We'll go get some counseling. We'll bring other people into this to try to figure out what's going on. But it won't make me stop being committed to him. But it will change how I feel about him, especially right in those moments. And this is why, and obviously, like, this example, this is not necessarily biblical. Like, you take it with a grain of salt. Do with it what you want. That's just, we get to take scripture and apply it to our lives. But, but this is why I believe that we see God so frustrated with the Israelites and their festivals. Their festivals didn't mean anything to them, to God, when they were cheating on God throughout the week with other gods, right? So if Jason had been taking our grocery money and going to the casino with it and gambling, or, or spending more time at, with his friends at the bar than at home, or playing video games even at home all day long and not actually connecting with me and not um, spending time with me throughout my week and I'm making meals and he's not even like saying thank you or even acknowledging that this thing that I did for him. Um, but then he's like, oh man, it's our date night. We better, oh, I made a reservation. Let's go. Let's do this. I would not be stoked to have a date with him because I wouldn't feel like I was loved the rest of the week. I would feel like it's an obligation and not something that was of, of meaning. Like I wouldn't be changed by that date. I would actually rather him kind of forget our date night if he wasn't attentive to me the rest of the week. Now, sometimes life happens and we get out of sync and we just do those things out of obligation because we just don't know what else to do. And there's seasons for that. I get that. But if we're not aware of how to love each other throughout the week, then how are we possibly loving each other when we show up on a date? And you're welcome to disagree with this kind of understanding, of course, but... The Israelites, um, they were known to remember the Sabbath because it was one of their rules. They could not break that. It's one of the ten, the big ten commandments, to remember the Sabbath. Kind of like us showing up for church every Sunday or whatever. Like it's, it's a rhythm. It's what we do. But the rest of their lives didn't always match up their profession of love for God through the Sabbath. Now, it's really important to understand, like, does God need us? To show him love? Like, is he waiting for us to finally get to our senses to show him love? Is he like, I need that. I need that from them right now. No. His love is not contingent upon our love for him, okay? He is not, he did not create us because he had some sort of need in his life to be filled by us. That is not God. That's not how God works. These Ten Commandments and all of his laws and all of his commands were not put in place for God's sake. They were there for Israel. God put those commands in place for Israel. He put those practices and those laws in place because he loves Israel, because he loves you, because he loves me. 
So what's that crazy thing that happened before when Moses and the Israelites were at Mount Sinai and God is giving them the Ten Commandments? What was that crazy thing that happened like just a few weeks before? What was happening? Do you remember? What's that? They're playing with gold. They're playing with gold? Absolutely. But remember, even before that, they were, they were enslaved in Egypt, right? They're, all, they're in this place for hundreds of years, enslaved in Egypt, um, and God rescues them out of Egypt. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Thanks for being all over Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is, this is the Ten Commandments rewritten again. So it's like the retelling of the Ten Commandments. And it says on verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, then flip over. Uh, verse 15 in chapter 5. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Um, and then it says again in verse in chapter 6, verse 12, Be careful of you who do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then it says in verses 21 to 24, all about Pharaoh and Egypt and the Lord bringing you out. And then um, it says in, in chapter 7, verse 17, You may say to yourselves, These nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But you do not be afraid of them. Remember well that the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. He brought you out basically again and again. And he says it again and again. Chapter 8, verse 14. Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and slavery. And so on and so forth. Throughout it again and again. Don't forget don't forget. Don't forget what God has done for you. So God takes these people out of Egypt. He gets them through the Red Sea. And he's rescued them from a life of perpetual slavery. And just a few days after that, the people start to complain. They, they are hungry. They begin to doubt God's love. They begin to doubt God's provision. They begin to look fondly on Egypt. They craved Egypt again. And so this God who loves humans so much begins to write down these laws of worship. These laws of caretaking. Look at the foreigner among you. Look at the poor and the oppressed among you. Writes down laws of what it means to be good humans. Laws of food. Laws of planting. Laws of harvesting. In incredible detail, if you look throughout, and I, I encourage you to get into the Old Testament. If we're supposed to understand Christ, we have to know our Old Testament. We have to. So get into it, and you will be like blown away about why God put such incredible detail on a person's coat. And the reason God wrote into this story such detail is because God understood that Egypt is really hard to remove. Obeying these laws, it became like this type of salvation to remove Egypt from the people's hearts and from the people's habits. And the thing is, is like, I think that we all have a little bit of Egypt in us, right? There's, there's still, yeah, yeah, a little bit still. And, and there are parts of your past. Before you gave your life over to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, before Jesus has come in and cleaned you out and made you new, there are still parts of your past that God has already cleaned out and gotten rid of. But when you're not aware that you're connected to the vine, as we talked about last week, being connected to the vine of Christ, when you're not aware that you're still connected to the vine just because life gets distracting and things are busy, what happens is Egypt can come back in and make its home with you. It's not like you're searching it out necessarily. Not like it has a place because God's already rid you of Egypt. But when we're not like connected, when we're not aware that we're connected to the vine, Egypt can easily make its home. We may allow other gods of materialism, of greed, of taking more for ourselves at the cost of another person to make its home and make it first in our lives again, really easily. 
You might forget how fully complete you are in God. That God's already, already, totally in you. That all of a sudden you, you may find yourself trying to, to find your self-worth in how other people see you again. Instead of really knowing that God already sees you as wonderful and perfectly clean and perfectly great. God's already made you like that. And Egypt will look different for you oftentimes than it will for the person sitting next to you. It, it, everybody has a different kind of sense. But the reality is, is that the enemy knows what your Egypt is. The enemy is so aware of what the past looked like in your life. And when you are in that place of like just distraction and busyness and not in the word, not connected to the vine, like not intentionally with Jesus and with other people in your life, the enemy is so quick to get in there. To convince you that God doesn't love you. To convince you that you're not complete in God's love. So obedience to God, this idea of loving God through Jesus Christ, it helps take Egypt out of me. So putting in like just simple practices of, of being in the scripture every day, of, of being in prayer, like a, a simple practice of meditating. I mean, even as silly as it is, but like if you take a shower in the morning, take an intentional part of that shower of like just meditating on God's love. Even just speaking the name of Jesus again and again in a prayer is, is a form of meditation. Times of solitude, those sorts of simple practices actually help us to stay aware of God's love for us. And sometimes following God, sometimes being married, sometimes being in a friendship relationship with people, sometimes it can get really mundane, right? It's like the same old thing again and, the and again. There's nothing new that's happening. It feels like monotonous in a way. And that's just the reality of life. And sometimes following God can kind of feel monotonous as, as well. It feels like the same experiences over and over again. But God wants to come in and make even the mundane full of life. That is what God is desiring for each of us. And those Israelites, they, they followed God and learned his laws while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And I'm sure that there were moments, many moments of just that mundane life. But it's through that mundane continuation of following that we actually experience the life of God's continual love and devotion. And, and it was God continually loving them and like removing Egypt from them again and again, getting them ready for this new life that he was preparing for them, this, this, this new um, land that he was talking about that was flowing with milk and honey, this land of like completeness, of shalom essentially. They all died. They all died. That's a story for another time. <laughs> well, but I mean, it, it does have significance though, right? I mean, it... Even, even in that, though, God was still with them. Like, even in that wandering sense, God didn't leave the cloud of smoke and the, the pillar of fire at night. He, he didn't just take off. He was with them the whole time. So what does God's love look like? Um, turn with me to Romans, and we'll end on this before we go into our time of communion. Romans chapter 5. So Paul is saying here in chapter 5 of Romans, verse 6, You see, just at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. We weren't in this place of perfection. We weren't in a place of, of understanding God's law and why we were doing what we were doing. We had no rhythms in our lives of, of holiness at all. And so when we were still in that state of brokenness and missing the mark and living for ourselves only, like... Christ died for us. And that's just the reality. 
that we get to live in. But he didn't stay dead. He resurrected from the dead. God resurrected him, and, and we get to celebrate that, that new life that Jesus offers. And so one of the things that we get to celebrate within that is communion. And we practice it every single week. And Jesus was with his disciples. They were in this room and enjoying each other's company and, and eating this meal that they eat every year. And, and sometimes it's almost like a way of thinking, um, you know, if we think of like the, this relationship with God as a marriage between God and Israel, Passover would be considered like an anniversary, essentially like a celebration of what God has done in their lives all along. And so they were celebrating this anniversary with God that they did every single year through the Passover meal. And it's a fancy meal. They break out the best china. They have the best foods. They celebrate God's provision in their lives. And they remember before they eat and celebrate, they remember the sadness and the bitterness and the heartache it was of living in Egypt of coming through Egypt, of, of coming out of slavery. And it's this way of continually remembering that Egypt has been removed. And so Jesus was with his disciples and he takes bread and he, and, and he breaks it and it's this unleavened bread that, that was part of the whole Seder meal. Um, and, and he said, hey, this is my body broken for you. And then the fourth cup of wine that night, and we have juice in the back. Um, he took that wine and he poured it and he said, this is, my, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, these practices are something that I want you to do every time you're with other believers. Every time you gather in my name. Because in these practices, it is a way of reminding you that Egypt has no place in your life. That Egypt is gone and that I've set you free for a different way of living and a different sort of life. So this sense of obedience, of, of the Ten Commandments that are still just as relevant today as they were when God wrote them down. They're just as relevant because we follow Jesus who followed his Father. This is a gift of grace. This, this sense of obedience is a gift of grace. It's not required um, because it... it what it, what it is, is it allows us to live into this sort of life that God has given us. This, not a sense of legalism, as, as people were saying. Not a sense of, um, if you don't do this, you're sure going to get in trouble by the church and we're going to get on your back. It is not meant to be that way. It's not meant to be something that is a burden. It is meant to be something that is grace, that draws us even deeper into the heart of God. So we can actually see this life that, of, of shalom, of of. of kindness and justice and gentleness and all of those things that God is doing in this world. We want to be connected to the vine and being a person who is obedient to what God is inviting us into is a way that we can be connected. It's a gift, not legalism. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together with communion um, and it's a time of worship so we sing three songs together in worship and this is your time. There's no we don't have like a formula of um, how you're allowed to worship. If you brought a scarf, you're welcome to wave a scarf. If you, if you want to lay on the ground over here, you're welcome to lay on the ground. If you want to kneel or raise your arms or just sit or lay in a pew, this is, this is your time with the Lord to worship. And it's, a, it's not just you and God connecting together. It's also this great company of saints here. The people who are around you singing for joy with you, holding your voice up when you don't have a voice left, okay? So this is our time to worship, and so we worship through song, we worship through prayer, we worship through communion, and we worship through giving. Um, we have generosity boxes, and so if this is your community, we just continually ask you to pray about where God is asking you to give to this place and beyond this place, that this is a place that we get to practice. All right. Any last thoughts or questions or anything before we go into our time of worship? Yeah, Noah. Um, <clears throat> one thing that really jumped out of uh, what you were talking about is Egypt and India, and kind of constantly remembered. And you used the word um, the enemy yeah. a couple times. Yeah. Um, and I'm sort of curious what you mean by that. How do you see that term? That's a good question. So the enemy, um, God defines the enemy in the Bible 
with a, with a word called the Satan. Um, Satan would be a way that we say it. Um, and basically it is, it is a being that, that was cast out of all that God represents with heaven and kind of represents anything that's against God. So uh, the Bible describes a lot of different like spiritual warfare and, and fighting that happens within um, this sense of other beings that are against God and other beings, um, the Bible calls them angels, uh, you know, and how they, they fight over the purposes that God wants in the world. And, and so when I say enemy, I mean like, you know, the Bible talks about the, about the enemy as, as a real entity that is here to steal, kill, and destroy, to make this world um, into a place of, of darkness and self-centered um, grossness, essentially. And so as the people of God, we need to, to see that and have eyes to see that er those areas of darkness and then the ways that we can come in and fight that with the light of Christ. Um, I know that's kind of convoluted, but that's how... Does, it, yeah, does anybody else have any thoughts towards that or anything that you can speak towards? Yeah, Russ. Oh. Busyness is kind of a, a social construct that we that we live into um, in a lot of ways, and and it's like we can either engage in that, or or we we don't need to. So um, sometimes even just that practice of Sabbath coming in, it it that practice can actually reshape your entire week for how you are seeing how fast the world is going, or or those those experiences that. And maybe you're not experiencing that, and and we. I think I have a lot to learn from you in that regard as well. Um, but I allow this, these feelings of of um, 
be having to be places really quick and maybe it's because I'm in a different life with, with the kids and that sort of thing but I, I feel it more in my own life um, and and the practice of Sabbath is something that continually it forces me to slow down I I have to I have to turn off my phone I have to turn off my computer and anything that is um, you know we, I have to get out of my house honestly because there's always a mountain of laundry to do and, and dishes to do and if I'm in my house, I'm not actually celebrating my relationship with God and worshiping God. I'm, I'm worshiping the things that have to get done. So, um, it, it, so Sabbath has become a practice that helps me um, just recognize that God is present in all things. So if he lives within me, mm-hmm. the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they're right in here, yeah. and they're my management team, if I'm busy, am I not listening to my management team? If I'm too busy and things are too fast, am I not listening to this management team that's within me? Am I just listening to myself? Hmm. Probably. Seeing those things that 
are on your schedule just because of your distractions that you want to engage. And they start getting smaller and harder. You're saying mm -hmm. it does. Good. Yeah. Okay. Noah, and then no, no. This is this is good. Obviously, we all we all have things to get into. Noah, what were you going to say then, Marta? Well, I just, first of all, I want to say I, I love the rest of the term management team. I'm gonna, that's that's going to be one I can really work with, I think, yeah. in my heart. Um, but I also just want to underscore that you're right, Bethany, when you, I feel that busyness is a social construct that is, um, it's, it's, it's really refreshing to have someone to question, like, hey, what's this business you guys mm. are talking about? Because it does have something to do with phase of life, having kids, self-employed, all that stuff, but like, I almost just feel like if I didn't feel busy, like, there's just something wrong. And I need to right. look busy. Like, what am I doing? You know, there's right. just that is out there. You totally. Know, American society. And, um, and I do think that that is um, what actually causes great distress, harm, distraction, and ultimately losing sight of God. Right. Um, for me, that just really right. spoke to me. And, and, and the thing about the Sabbath, not letting it be just like, as you said, great <laughs> night when once a week you're really nice to your spouse and the rest of the week you're not really thinking about them or their right. needs. You know, that, that is a little bit too much, I think, the sort of American notion of the weekend. You know? mm -hmm. um, that's not really the spirit, but I think the Sabbath has to be right. um, pervading every day or you will feel unhinged by, by that busyness. Um, right. Anyway, I just like how that tied it all together. Good, good. Yeah, it changes. We get changed by God in those moments. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, journey together, live different, and provoke change.